Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Well, welcome once again to another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I am your host, Dana Auguster, and uh, right back at you with another episode, and I'm glad to be glad to have you along. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about something that uh, I've had a conversation about with a few of my friends, and um, there's one guarantee in life, is that is the element of change. Things change over time, and in sports, change is always prevalent. Whether it's teams relocating or rules becoming amended or maybe just flat out eliminated, change is always constant. Instead of using the word change in sports, sometimes we have, have a tendency to use the word evolve, which is, I guess, true. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about several things in sports that had existed or was once a major part of a sport has been either been taken away evolved away or just flat out just eliminated and those several things that we're going to be talking about today will bring back memories and evoke nostalgia of some of of those things that that were in the past that were like wow i forgot about that that's the whole point of this week's show and also we're going to be talking about this week's top five which includes uh the aforementioned teams relocating because there are several teams that actually in the nfl and afl that relocated to different cities. And also, the two giants of the Negro Leagues celebrating anniversaries this week that were major parts of that league's history. Two major, major forces in that league, as well as, and perhaps the biggest upset, maybe one of the biggest upsets in the history of sports. And one of those moments that makes you, that makes you remember not only where you were or what you were doing when this either you witnessed or you heard about it. And I was a type of person that at that time when I heard about it, I remember exactly what I was doing and where I was when I first heard about this major upset. And also this week's shout out. So stay tuned, pull up a chair and just take a look at this week's and listen to this week's edition of this of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Hello and welcome back to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Auguster and glad to have you aboard once again. And 
Today we're going to be talking about certain things in sports that you don't necessarily uh, see anymore. Um, I used to, I like to kid around with millennials a lot for not being aware of certain things that are around, and I'm and I only kid them. I mean, millennials can't help being born when they were born, but it is what it is. And there were a lot of things in sports that they really don't understand or realize that even existed. I, I live with a millennial, actually a couple of them, and um, they are like interested in knowing what are some of the things that happened in the past that, that, that no longer exist in sports. And I always bring up these things and I want to share them with you uh, today. Um, I broke them up into different categories, um, just different sport in general in sports in general. Some of the uh, things that you really don't see anymore. Also, I broke them down also in sports. I got a couple in basketball that you don't see anymore, a couple things in football that you don't see, and a couple things in baseball that you don't also don't see. But in a way, with the baseball ones, I kind of wish they could bring back, you know, to make it a little bit more interesting. And, and, and I'm more of a traditionalist of baseball anyway. And you learn about more about that when uh, time goes on as we do more and more of these episodes. Um, but the first thing, I want to talk about is just sports in general. And the first thing that comes up comes to mind when we talk about sports that I wish that 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 was a big part of the sports landscape as when I was growing up in the late 70s and early 80s was a show called Why World of Sports. Now, people that are old enough to know when you hear the music and you hear John McKay, um, Jim McKay, excuse me, not John McKay, but Jim McKay was the was the host, and you hear him talk about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, and you think about the ski jumper that's falling off the ski slope, you know. But that was a show that we watched as when I was growing up. Me and my grandfather both. That was appointment television, to say the least. Um, it was like I said, hosted by Jim McKay. It was on ABC, and it was one of those shows that you. You pretty much set your whole day around on a Saturday afternoon. And those, some of the things that they would cover was just outrageous. Essentially what it was, if you don't really know, imagine ESPN2, but just doing and watching fringe sports. But it was weird, but at the same time, interesting. I mean, one game, one week you'd be covering the Monaco Grand Prix. And the next week you would be in Dublin covering the World um, arm wrestling championships at some pub. So, I mean, that's the way it was with, uh, Wide World of Sports. And it was like one of those shows that was so, so very interesting. It started in 1961. And the first thing that they covered was the pin relays at Historic Franklin Field. It was this big, huge amateur, uh, track meet. And that was the first thing they covered in 19, in, in April of 1961. And the show lasted until 1998. And it had a, but but you had a, a whole long list of hosts, but the main host, of course, was Jim McKay. And you would hear his voice at the beginning of the show, and you knew on 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock or whatever time it came on, you knew that that was time to watch some serious sports. And some of the things that they would cover, just to go through it, would be something like they would cover rodeos and curling, powerlifting, surfing, you know, cliff diving in Mexico, um, demolition derby. Uh, barrel jumping and, and others. And, uh, but the one thing, Jim McKay was really the star, but the person who really was made a star of why world sports was evil Knievel. You know, every year he would come in and he would be, um, 
wanted to, he'd probably be jumping like I remember one time he jumped the uh, like twenty five double decker buses in at London's Wembley Stadium and wiped out. And uh, that was some of the things that you would look forward to. One year he jumped the Snake River Canyon. Uh, and he was just this daredevil. It was motorcycle daredevil, and you would watch him every time you. They announced that he was going to be jumping something. You know, you'd be like, oh, I have to watch that. I have to have to watch that. And that was why World of Sports. Uh, another thing in sports that uh, that millennials and, and other people of a certain age don't really remember is the Winter and Summer Olympics were actually in the same calendar year. Like in 1992, I want to say, they decided to stagger the Olympics. Have two years, every two years you have an Olympic Games. You know, you have the Winter Olympics, and then two years later, you have the Summer. And then two years after that, you have the Winter again, and two years after that, you have the Summer. But once upon a time, you would have the Winter and Summer Olympics actually in the same year. And that would make it very interesting. So in February, you look forward to the Winter Olympics, you know, watching bobsledding and figure skating and downhill skiing and ski jumping and all of that. So you fast forward a few months in the summer months, June, July, August, September, here came the Summer Olympics, wherever it may have been. So once upon a time, the Winter and Summer Olympics were actually in the same calendar year, which made it kind of a very interesting sport here because you had the regular sports that you would cover and you would watch and be fans of. But at the same time, you had the additional people that you've never heard of playing in these sports that you only saw every four years, like track and field and um figure skating and downhill skiing and swimming you see those those people will become famous just for that particular year on which unlike every other year um but yeah the winter and summer olympics once the time people was one time in the same calendar year not so anymore going to basketball basketball you know is a sport that i i love i, I watch and big fan of pretty much my whole life and one of the things in basketball you don't see anymore thankfully i think that's part of the evolution of the game especially the pro game is in once upon a time in the nba there was something called illegal defense now what was illegal defense for some of the people some of you guys that's out there that's listening remember that Remember illegal defense when all of a sudden you're playing and somebody blows the whistle and everybody's looking around and say, okay, what happened? And the official would, would declare it was illegal defense. So it was like, oh, okay. So basically you were looking at, okay, what happened? You know, no one knew what happened. So illegal defense essentially was when a defensive team, the team that's playing defense, would somehow go into a zone accidentally. See, the, the rule was at the time that you had to either guard either the man, a man, or guard the ball. You couldn't drop off a certain distance. If you dropped off a defensive, off, off an offensive player a certain distance, the referee could call illegal defense. In other words, you're sagging into a zone. And essentially, the reason why that rule was was because that teams would try to clog down the lane so that way you couldn't get an inside shot which was basically the way the nba was played in those days was that you a lot of it was it was mainly an inside low post game as opposed to now where everybody's jacking up threes but being in the low post was the offensive move for for offenses in the nba so they decided to come up with this thing called illegal defense 
to make teams play either man, basically play man to man. Okay, you either guard a ball or guard a man, nothing else. That rule lasted until the 2001-2002 season. And and that's the way it was. It was you basically had to guard a person or the ball, not an area. And that was taken away in 2001, 2002, which actually opened up the game more. It made, you know, gave you, it gave license to what we have now, which is a lot of three point shooting, shooting over zones, making it more of an outside game, which, which I think was a, I think a good move. You know, at the, in the beginning, I was kind of, kind of leery about it, but after looking at it and watching the way teams play now, it kind of needed it because it, became more of a slow down, slug it out, smash mouth type of game, especially in the 1990s. And that's the reason why they decided to go with that rule to change that rule and to make it, you could play a zone and it would free up shooters and it wouldn't be such of a smash mouth type of game. Another thing about basketball that was taken away, and this was, this lasted from 1954 to 1981. And it was one rule or one instance in games that I heard about as recently and I had to do research on it and it was very interesting I heard that I kind of remember this as a kid but not so much but what it was was something called three to make two is basically the NBA's version of the one and one rule in basketball in college basketball but at the same time it was the reverse Basically what it was, was when a free throw shooter, if a player was fouled either in the backcourt or on the floor, non-shooting foul, and a team was over the foul limit, the, uh, the free throw shooter would be getting given two free throws. If he happened to miss the first one, he gets another free throw. If he makes the second free throw, he in turn gets a third free throw. Hence the term three to make two. So you were given essentially if you missed the first one, you get basically an extra free throw. You know, if a team that committed the foul was over the foul limit or it was a backcourt foul and the team was also over the foul limit. It never worked on a shooting foul. It was always on the floor foul or a backcourt foul. So you don't see necessarily that rule anymore. It was, it, like I said, it was around from 1954 to uh, 1981. And it was, it was a, one of those things in the NBA where if you watch old footage of games and the game back then, it, even in the seventies, seemed just totally foreign to what it is now. Of all the games, I think that basketball has evolved the most over the last 40 to 50 years. Um, another thing in basketball that you don't see anymore, and this goes to college basketball. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Another thing you don't see in college basketball too much anymore is the NCAA tournament consolation game. Whenever you had the final four, the two teams that won obviously would play in the national championship game. However, the two teams that lost this national semifinals that Saturday night would play each other in essentially the third place game, which always took place the afternoon of the national championship game, just the afternoon before third place. It really, who would want to play in that game now? 
If you worked all year and wanted to worked all year to get to the final four and you lose in the final four, you have to play another game, essentially for third place in which nobody would really watch. And that was the reason why they stopped it in the mid eighties. No one was watching it. And you have the two teams that lost, you're bummed out that you lost, but you really don't want to play. But the college, but the tournament said, yeah, you got to play to determine third place. Do anyone remember who was the third place team in the 1977 NCAA tournament? I don't. And I'm a big fan of college basketball and I really don't know. So that's really what it was. The NCAA tournament constellation game essentially was a third place game and it's something that the tournament doesn't really do anymore. And finally, in basketball, you have when NBA playoff games were on tape delay. Now this is more along the lines of television ratings but what essentially was that if you had a playoff game that took place during the middle of the week um unless it was you know other than the western time zone games games that were in the eastern time zone playoff games at, at that time you would they would play the game but it wouldn't be shown live on television it would be shown right after the late local news so you have to stay up till 10 30 11 o'clock at night to watch an nba playoff game you know between the washington bullets and the boston celtics you know you have to stay up late 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 at night to watch that game and they stopped doing this in the mid 80s in the early 80s actually because of the, the popularity that Magic Johnson and Larry Bird brought to the NBA, but that was essentially the reason why they did it. Um, and also another reason was because of not only low ratings, but they didn't, the NBA for some reason didn't want local television affiliates to broadcast the score before the, either the game ended or before they had a chance to show the game nationally. So it was more of a money grab t- type of, I want to know, I want to, be able to tell the masses who won the game before the late local news could. So that was the reason why they did it in the late 70s and throughout most of the 70s and the first teeny bit of the 80s. Because I remember that as a kid growing up, that you I had to sit up and watch an NBA playoff game with my grandpa late at night. But, of course, I couldn't do it during the school night, obviously. But that's the way it was back in the early 80s. And now, shifting gears now to football, what are some of the things that – Millennials don't really understand about football and what are some of the things that was big in, in football back in the day. Here's one. And this is going to bring a lot of, bring a smile to a lot of people's face when I mention this one word. Stick'em. For those who don't know, stick'em was a sticky substance that receivers and defensive backs would smear on their hands and jerseys to help them hold on to passes. Ken Stabler, the quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, once said that it was something that you could probably use to lay brick with. And the Raiders were mainly one of the main people to really use this with their renegade style and cheating to win pretty much, basically, allegedly. They would use receivers, especially like Fred Belidnikoff and defensive back Lester Hayes was known for this, maybe even infamous for using Stick'em. And basically what Stick'em was, was just, like I said, it was a very sticky substance that they would smear on their jerseys and hands to help them hold on to passes. And 
when it came with Lester Hayes, Lester Hayes was probably the most notorious for using stickum because he not only was smeared on his hands and his jersey, he was smeared over his arms, his helmet, his face mask, everything. Uh, there was one urban legend that said that one time, either doing a game or doing practice, um, Jim Plunkett or Ken Staber threw a pass in his direction and the ball hit him in the back of the helmet and it actually stuck to the back of his helmet. Yes, it actually did, but that's an urban legend. And according to Howie Long, he can neither confirm nor deny the aforementioned incident. So go figure. Um, another thing in football, but this was mainly in college, was that you had something called college all-star games. Now, you have the Senior Bowl, which is basically used for scouting purposes. But this was a big, big deal back in the day. When you had college football, you had the, uh, the Senior Bowl, but also you had t- games like the East-West Shrine Bowl in San Francisco. You had the Hula Bowl in Hawaii. And you also had the Blue-Gray game, always played on Christmas in Mobile, Alabama. Blue-Gray game was essentially North versus South. And it was played every year on Christmas. And that was one of the things that we used to look forward to to watch on Christmas Day before the NBA took over Christmas. So that was what was one of the big things about college football, besides bowl games and stuff like that. You had the college all-star game. And even before that, they had college all-stars playing against the NFL champs, you know, every year. And that was also a pretty big deal. I think that game was played in Philadelphia, I want to say, or Washington, something like that. But they played that at, or Soldier. I think it was at Soldier Field, actually, now that I think about it. They used to play this game every year at Soldier Field, the college all-stars against the NFL champs. And this was a big deal until, like, I want to say the early 70s they stopped, you know, and just decided to have, like, a bowl game for just college all-stars. Um, and then finally, the last thing about the NFL that you don't really see anymore is something called or, or, or barefoot kickers. Now, this was, this subject was actually brought up by a friend by Darren Hayes at a pigskin, uh, dispatch a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that, and I, I was like, I remember that, uh, barefoot kickers. And you had guys like Mike Lansford of the Rams, Tony Franklin of the Eagles and Patriots, and Rich Carlos of the Broncos, and they would kick field goals barefoot. Even in cold weather, they would take off their shoes and kick a barefoot kick the football barefoot um and the reason why they did this was because they felt that you can control kicks better barefoot and also you have a better chance of hitting the ball sweet spot with a barefoot instead of cleats and i tried it when i was a kid and banged my toe so often i was like i can't do this anymore i can't do this so that was some of the things that took place in with uh Barefoot kickers, you know, they would kick the ball barefoot. And you don't see that anymore in the NFL. Wonder why. And finally, the last thing was something called the Burt Bell Playoff Bowl. And what that was, was when you had the two third-place teams, not second place, but third-place teams in each conference play each other in Miami as as an exhibition game at the end of the season. And... They, this was this took place throughout the entirety of the 1960s, and this was, I guess, a big deal. But this was something that you don't see. Two third place teams, especially after the AFL NFL merger, they had stopped it. But there was something called the Burt Bell Playoff Bowl when you had two third place teams facing off each other 
in in an exhibition game at the end of the year. Okay. And finally, getting to baseball real quick. Two things that no one talks about in baseball anymore is the World Series games taking place during the day. Once upon a time, there was the World Series that took place during daytime hours. I think they need to bring this back to introduce the game to kids because, you know, it, baseball of all the sports is probably the most romantic sport. And it has the most romance. And part of that romance was the World Series taking place during the day. And people would listen to it on the radio or sneak up out of class to listen to a couple innings. And that was part of the romance of the game. And that, that needs to be brought back. But, you know, World Series games played during the day could introduce baseball to a whole new generation of fans rather than having a World Series game start at 8 o'clock and not ending until like one until 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. I think that's what's really important. And another thing that... Fans of a certain age do not remember when baseball, the baseball schedule with teams in the American League would only play teams in the American League and teams in the National League would only play teams in the National League. No interleague. And I think that added a little bit more of an intrigue for whenever you have the All-Star game and also the World Series. Now, granted, everything is everything now in baseball and other sports really is business. But adding to the romance of the game, of course, you have the National League teams playing only National League teams and American League teams playing only American League teams. I think that needs to also make a comeback. But that's something that millennials and other people of a certain age know nothing about. So that was this week's main event. Things that you don't see too much, you don't see too much in sports anymore or at all in sports anymore. And now this week's top five. Hello and welcome back to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And uh, just a reminder, if you would like to subscribe to the show, hit me up on the Historically Speaking Sports tab at the Sports History Network website. And you could hit the subscribe button at the bottom of the page. That way you get the heads up on whenever I'm dropping a new show. Um, you could also catch me on on Twitter at the Historically SP2 uh, check me up right there if you have any show ideas or any topics you want to talk about. If you have any questions or anything that you may add, want to add to the show, just hit me up there once again on Twitter at HistoricallySP2. I'm always open to new ideas and topics and shows that you may have, show ideas that you may have. And now this week's top five. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Once again, I'm Dana Augusta, your host. And right now, we're going to be taking a dive into this week's top five, highlighting the top five events in sports history taking place this week, which was February 7th through February the 13th. Number five, going in, going in reverse order. Number five, we're going to be talking about teams relocating to different cities. 
three teams in the NFL made re, uh, made their moves into greener pastures, I guess you could say. In 1961, the Los Angeles Chargers leave the cavernous L.A. Coliseum and move down the coast to sunny San Diego, where they would spend the next 50-plus years. In 1961, they were the Los Angeles Chargers in their very first season, and they were moved down to San Diego. And now you you realize that they moved back to L.A. and now they're, now they're once again the Los Angeles Chargers. Another team making a move, and that was a couple of years later, and that was the Dallas Texans, who were sharing the city of Dallas with the Cowboys of the NFL, but the Dallas Texans of the AFL would stay in Dallas until nineteen until the end of the nineteen sixty two season, where they actually won the AFL championship that year against the Houston Oilers. Right after the right after that game, it was decided by owner Lamar Hunt that Dallas wasn't big enough for two teams, and he felt like the Cowboys had a better chance of being more profitable in Dallas. So he decided to move his team north to Kansas City, Missouri, where they would change their name to the Kansas City Chiefs. And another team that may re, that relocated, but a number of years later, and that would be the Cleveland Browns. Owner Art Modell figured that he needed a new stadium in Cleveland, and the Cleveland City Fathers wasn't really all that enthused about trying to fund have public money to fund a new stadium. So Modell decided to move the team to Baltimore, where they would become the Ravens. Now, part of the deal for the Browns to move out of Cleveland was that the Browns had to leave their colors, history, records, and everything had to stay in Cleveland in order for Modell to move his franchise, which they did. And a few years later in 1999, the NFL granted Cleveland another, granted team, uh, Cleveland an expansion team, which they will rechristen the Browns. And that's the reason why we have the Browns today and the Baltimore Ravens coexisting in the AFC North. Number four, speaking of Cleveland, Cleveland would hire a man by the name of Paul Brown as their coach for their entry into the All-American Football Conference in 1946. Now, Paul Brown, Cleveland didn't have a name for their team, so with hit with Brown's success as a coach at Ohio State as well as in in Ohio football, high school football, that is, they decided to name the team after him, the Cleveland Browns. And they would begin play in the All-American Football Conference that year. Number three is the creation of the Negro Leagues by Andrew Rue Foster in 1920. During his tenure as the uh, I guess you could say the founder of the Negro Leagues. The Negro Leagues became one of the most profitable black businesses in all of America. Um, the Negro Leagues lasted until the mid-1950s, and you had such great teams and great players that was a part of that organization. The great teams of the Kansas City Monarchs and the Detroit Stars and Philadelphia Stars and and and, and all of that. And uh, they, this was just an unbelievable organization with some of the greatest players to ever play pro, uh, professional baseball. But unfortunately, you really don't see too many of them in the record books because unfortunately, a lot of the records were either lost in history or wasn't taken seriously or whatever. You had some, some really outstanding players in the Negro Leagues, which leads us to number two. One of those players who played in the Negro Leagues that was 
truly special was a man by the name of Leroy Satchel Page. And on this, in this week in 1971, he became the first ne- former Negro League player to be inducted into the Pro Baseball Hall of Fame. He played for several different teams in the Major League, but he most notably played for the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues. He played for the Cleveland Indians and led them, was part of the 1948 um, World Series champion Cleveland Indians. He also played for the St. Louis Browns and several other teams in, the, in Major League Baseball, which that was number two. Number one, and this is one of those events in sports history that you remember where you were when you heard about this or you saw it. And that was in 19, this week in 1990, when Buster Douglas upset, knocked out Mike Tyson in the 10th round in Tokyo, Japan in 1990. I remember hearing about it from a friend of mine who actually watched the fight. I was supposed to go and see the fight at my friend's house, but chose not to go because no one had heard of Buster Douglas. And this was Mike Tyson. And most of his fights up to that point didn't last but maybe one or two rounds. And I figured out the same thing that was going to happen. But as it turned out, one of the biggest upsets, not only in boxing history, but one of the biggest upsets in sports history was James Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson, which changed the course of pro boxing to this day. That was this week's top five. And now to close out the show, this week's shout outs. And welcome back once again to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And now we're going to get into this week's shout outs. And first shout out goes to the Winter Olympics. There were several Winter Olympics that started uh, this week uh, in sports history, namely a few couple of them here in the United States. In 1980, the Winter Olympics opened in Lake Placid, New York, which is also known as the Olympic that featured the Miracle on Ice and other great performances like such as Eric Hyden and others. That's opened in 1980 this week. And also in 2002, the Winter Olympics would return to of the North American continent to Salt Lake City, Utah, a couple of years and eight years after it was held in the great Salt Lake area. Uh, it returned to Canada, where it was in then Vancouver. Uh, also, the, the Winter Olympics took place in 1988 in Calgary, Alberta. So it was a number of great Winter Olympic Games that took place this week. We're open this week, back in the day, this uh, this past week in history. Also, Taking place in history. Another shout out goes to Spud Webb. At five foot seven, Spud Webb shocked the world and won the 1986 uh, Slam Dunk Contest in Dallas, Texas, at Reunion Arena. Uh, it was one of the most entertaining dunk contests ever performed. Also, in 1969, another shout out goes to Pete Maravich. In a losing effort for LSU, Pete Maravich dropped 66 points against Tulane, which was the second highest total in his career he would later go on to score 69 points in a single game but 66 points is the second most points ever scored by Pete Maravich in a career in a single game in his career at LSU as he went on to become an All-American with the Tigers also another shout out goes to Bill Parcells who in 1997 became the head coach of the New York Jets 
He was uh, very successful with the Jets and led them to two AFC championship games during his tenure with the Jets, uh, both times losing in the in the championship round. I think actually it was one time he made it to the uh, AFC championship game, leading them against Denver. And finally, and another shout out goes to the New Orleans Saints, which this week in nineteen in two thousand ten. The Saints defeated the both the Indianapolis Colts, uh, thirty-one to seventeen in Miami to claim the franchise's first Super Bowl title. Drew Brees, the was named the game's MVP. The Saints quarterback had an outstanding game, and that game was also remembered for the onside kick that started the sec that opened the second half uh, for the Saints and they, and used that to uh, move on to win the Super Bowl against the Indianapolis Colts. Big, big, big win for that region and that city after everything that they had gone through after Hurricane Katrina. So that was this week's shout outs. And that is, and that concludes this week's show. I'm Dana Auguster, your host. Welcome and come back next week for some more interesting tidbits, stories and fascinating nuggets and knowledge of sports history and we, where we take sports history and examine each thing one week at a time. So until next time, you have a great week. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.